You know, often in life we do things or organizations do things, and there are sometimes unintended consequences. And I considered starting out my introduction on unintended consequences using my favorite example, and that would be the collective bargaining agreement for the National Basketball Association. <laughs> but lucky for you guys, I decided not to go with that interesting introduction, as even though obviously the collective bargaining agreement is super fun. So I decided maybe I would come up with a few other examples of some unintended consequences that sometimes take place. So I went online to search out some unintended consequences. Maybe some of you have seen a few of these, maybe not, but here we go. You know, you're going you're gonna to have a taste challenge, and you're going to have it sponsored by Pepsi, and oops, Coke won. Or maybe you were going to build a pyramid, and it really just kind of ended up being a pyramid scheme, you know? Or maybe you intended to have one of those really cool, I did this when I was a kid pictures, and now I'm going to do it when I was adult. And apparently that cat just got a little bit more mean as time went on. Or maybe you were going to make a few extra dollars. And then you realize turning yourself in for the cash doesn't really work, right? <laughs> oh, the unintended consequences we sometimes have in our life. That wonderful trip to the zoo with our children. And maybe it's not so wonderful. Anyway, we are going to talk about some unintended consequences today that happened in the Bible. So we had been talking about last week about Stephen. He made a speech. He's killed. The persecution comes. And so we're thinking to ourselves, okay... What's going on here? Well, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, they have decided they are going to do something about this whole Christianity thing, and they are going to crush it once and for all. At the beginning, okay, it was popular. You know, we don't want to create a problem, but man, this problem has grown out of control, and now we are going to start hammering them. And so this is a big transition. Because of this persecution, we're going to have this transition from everything being sort of localized in Jerusalem primarily to things... To, to a situation where the people are scattered throughout. And so we're going to have characters such as Philip, Paul, Peter, Cornelius, the unknown Hellenists, and then Peter again. And we're going to see where God takes them as they do their travels and they start to spread God's word. So let's go ahead and look at verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. So if you read this in a commentary, this little this phrase, Saul approved of his execution, it really kind of fits almost better in chapter 7. It's maybe as a summary statement of what had happened in chapter 7, but we have it here at the beginning of chapter 8, and so we know Saul is this key character. He's going to end up becoming really important when he turns to Paul, but he approves his execution, so this is sort of a, a continuation of what happened last chapter, and then we go on, it says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, the persecution has been moved from a warning in chapter 4 to a flogging in chapter four, 5, and now to full-out martyrdom in chapter 7. So, 
In Judaism, there is um, often a belief that the diaspora or the scattering of the Jews throughout the world actually ended up being a very positive thing because the Jews were able to minister and show kindness to people throughout the world. So there's some in Judaism that argue that because the Jews are scattered, it was actually a positive. They planted synagogues all over the world. And so I am actually going to argue today that the scattering of the Christians was actually a positive. I think we're going to see, as we continue on through these characters, the unintended consequences of the persecution that was laid upon the Christians. There's lots of examples of diaspora or of kicking people out and sending them on throughout church history. We often think of the Jews, but there's also some less famous ones, the Greeks in the fall of Constantinople, the African slave trade, of course, sent people all over the world, the southern Chinese, they had a big thing, the Irish had one as well. There are many, there are many and today we are going to talk about this rather small localized one that happened here in the Middle East where the Christians are spread. It says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. So Stephen's killed. The Christians are being persecuted. They start spreading out and they mourn Stephen. And, and this seems like kind of a, not a, I don't want to say a boring verse, but okay, yeah, they were sad. Obviously, they were sad. It's actually just a tiny bit more than that they were sad. Not that they maybe were more sad. I mean, lamentation, that often includes beating the chest, weeping. But the reason this is a little bit more special than maybe at first read is when someone's stoned to death, while you are allowed to bury that person, it was actually against the law of the Jews at that time to lament them. And so the Christians decided they would push against the law of the land and they would lament the death of Stephen, even though they were not supposed to. You can see how Christianity is shifting the power away from the Jewish leaders who wanted control, who controlled people through this religious system and laws. And now the Christians are moving on into the time where Christ would be the ruler of the church. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We know, according to other verses, later on, chapter 9, that Paul works with the Sanhedrin. He's doing this for the officials. This dragging idea is the idea of like a fishnet. If you think like fish, I don't know. Have you ever gone saning? Maybe some of you have gone saning. I, I, I don't know if that's the word. That's where I was a kid. And when I was growing up, and I was a kid, and we went fishing, I liked to go fishing, and I've probably told you this before, I really enjoyed it because Dad bought us Cheetos. We didn't normally get to eat Cheetos, but when Dad took us fishing, it was Cheeto time. And that was the funnest part, because when you went fishing with Dad, you didn't normally actually catch any fish, you know? We called it drowning worms, right? I think you've probably heard that before. You throw out the bobber, you drown the worm, but hey, you get to eat Cheetos, right? It's fantastic. And then I went to my cousin's house one time, and they said they were going saning. I didn't know what the saning thing was. I don't know how young I was. I was a pretty little kid, and we'd go to like a creek. It would be like, you know, like maybe a 
there'd be a bridge, and so there'd be a, in the creek, there'd be kind of a larger little a pond is incredibly generous because I think it only went up to even, not even up to my neck, and I was just a kid. It was very shallow. We'd take a net, and we put the net, and then we would, like, spread it out, and then we'd, like, walk in a circle. I was pretty young. I can't remember all the details somehow, da-da-da, and then we would catch all these fish. And I was like, this is the greatest thing in the whole world. Why have I been throwing one line in at a time where you can just take a net and drag them all at once, right? If you've ever fished, Net fishing is just so much more incredibly effective than one rod at a time. It's ridiculous. And I was like, great, we had to fish. Like, this is like more fish than I knew what to do with. And so when you think about what Saul was doing, he wasn't just persecuting like a Christian here or there. He wasn't just picking out one or two or a few or whatever. He was going house to house and collecting them with the thoroughness of which a net collects fish. The persecution, don't think of it as just one person dying, but an incredible, systematic persecuting of the entire church. Now those who were scattered went about preaching his word. What was the intent of all this persecution? What was the tent of dragging the proverbial net through the city, taking care of all these Christians? To get them to stop preaching the word. That's why they were doing it. We gotta make these people stop. And what ends up happening? The absolute opposite. Oh, the unintended consequences. They thought they were going to stamp this right out. I'd like to point out something here before we go on. You know why these were unintended consequences in this case? Because the Christians continued to do what God wanted them to do. If they would not have continued to be obedient to preach the word... I think this would have worked just fine. You know what? I bet it worked on many other religious groups. There are many other people that came around and claimed to be the Messiah at this time, and they were able to stamp all of them out just fine. But this Messiah, this Jesus, they were unable to push to the side, even though they were persecuting with such vigor. Now we get to chapter uh, verse 5, and we see this character Philip introduced. Really, maybe we could have gone on through verse 9 today. We're not going to because I thought it might just be a little bit too long and too much to take care of this morning. But the very first kind of specific story about him is, goes on in verse 8. But it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. So yeah, Philip, he's one of these people that gets sent out, and he goes to a city in Samaria. We're not really sure which city he went to. But as many of you probably already know, you know, when he went to Samaria, you know, how did the Jews view the Samaritans? You know, a lot of you know, right? I mean, it sounds crash. I almost feel like a little guilty saying it because it's such a, a kind of a horrible thing to say. But I mean, they, they saw them like half-breeds, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't even use this kind of language today. I'm not even sure what that is supposed to mean. I, I think it's really kind of awful. But... That's, that's what they would have said about, and worse, probably. I, I think that 
they, they would have even viewed them and maybe even been willing to use crueler words than that. They saw eating with Samaritans and associating with them worse than eating pork. Hey, there's a lot worse things than eating bacon, I can tell you that, so I'm not sure why they were so worried about it. But of course, the Jews eating pork was, uh-uh, no, no. Other daughters were considered unclean. They were just seen as another race, different group that you didn't associate with. But what does Philip do? He goes to Samaria, and he proclaims to them Christ. We start seeing this shift where Israel is like a country in which they were like a city on a hill. It was the world would look at Israel and see what God had done, which was somewhat effective during maybe more along the lines of David's time, more along the lines of Solomon's time, when Israel was following God more closely. And what, imagine what would have happened if they would have completely followed them all the time. But you can see at least tastes of what happened when Israel would follow God consistently. The world would look at them. They would see them and say, look, there's the example of what we could be. And then they would turn to God in that manner. And that was sort of the model of showing the world, the true God. But now we see the shift. No longer is it a city on a hill. It is a sending. Well, some people, when they came to America, said, we're going to come to America. We're going we're to make a city on a hill, which is a, which is a fine thing to say. But, you know, I think that those, the Baptists and others that said, no, 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 not just a city on a hill. We're going to go to Burma. We're going to go to China. We're going to go to these other countries, and we're going to be missionaries to them. That was the right choice to make, because this is the choice of the New Testament when Christ makes the shift all the way starting back with the Great Commission. So we go on to verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Once again, at the beginning of the church time period, there was all these particular miracles and signs that were done. It says in verse 7, For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had, who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. There's many miracles being done. Paul would later exercise such power, even though he wasn't one of the original 12. But at the beginning, it really kind of starts with the original 12, and it's a time of establishment. Once again, I've said it before, there's kind of a couple different ways to look at this, and maybe like a ton of nuance in between. One extreme would be, this happened at the early church, these sort of healings, and they don't happen at all now. Another sort of extreme is, they happened at this time, and they happen just as much as they do now, and then there's lots of in-between, right? They were more frequent back then in order to establish the Word of God, and less frequent now, but still happen. And of course, you know, there's tons and tons and tons of nuance in between. But there is absolutely no question as we go through the beginning of Acts, doing miracles, signs, and wonders happens at an incredible frequency. It's like chapter after chapter of miracles and wonders being done. And of course, it is a fantastic evangelistic tool. And it says in verse 8, so there was much joy in that city as Christ came to them. Can you imagine the message, you know, sometimes when someone calls you something, you know it's not true. Sometimes it's kind of hard 
not to take it to heart, you know? You can tell and say in your mind it's not true. You can say you're wrong. You know, especially, can you imagine, like, having a parent that tells you how dumb you are? And maybe everyone else in the world says, no, 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 you're not dumb. You know, you're, you're, your dad or your mom or whoever's wrong. But, you know, everyone else in the world can tell you and you can tell you. You can get good grades from now to kingdom come, but you're always going to remember that person in your life that said all those things to you over and over again. And when you do something wrong, you mess up, or you don't get that grade, or you do something you might think could be dumb, boy, it's really easy to have that voice come back, right? You're dumb. And you think about the Samaritans, their whole life, half-breeds, half-breeds. And maybe, maybe they would tell them, no, 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 that's not true. That's not, it's not our fault. You know, I didn't get to choose my parents. I didn't get to choose. But still, if your whole life... That's what you're getting being told. It's going to be hard not to think it. But now they get the wonderful message, what? This being an Israelite thing, this is, doesn't matter anymore. We are all one in Christ. No longer the walls of separation between the Samaritans and the Israelites. Now all one and equal in Christ. And why Israel may, I would say, has a special place for God in the future, I, I, I would argue that. We know in the time of the church, we are all one in Christ. You imagine the joy, the, the burden lifted off the shoulders of the Samaritans when they got to hear that they now were one. Just kind of end with one final story and I think it's going to be long but maybe I'll shorten it but have you ever read the book Peace Child Peace Child okay this book called Peace Child and I read it in college so I hope I get the details right but as a missionary went to a to a kind of undiscovered place that people there didn't have any contact with the outside world. And so he went to this place and he uh, got to know the people and uh, finally was able to integrate with them. Of course, it's a book. It's long. Take, it wasn't quite as easy as just driving in and uh, sitting down or whatever. But he works and he works and he works and connects with them. And he is just getting nowhere. You know, he, he doesn't have a single convert. And you know what made him even more frustrated When he would tell the story of Jesus, do you know who they thought the hero of the story was? Judas was the hero of the story to them. And he could just not figure out why they thought Judas was the hero. I mean, obviously, he was like the big backstabber. Like, why in the world would you think this person who's like totally backstabs Jesus is the good guy? And it took him a while, and he got to know, and he got to know, and he got to know, and he realized something. The greatest honor in this culture was to deceive your enemy. And so there's like a very long story in the book. I, I don't quite remember all the details about 
a man from one tribe and a man from another meeting in the woods. And, and of course, they're enemies. And like, I think the one's hurt or something. And so the other one helps them, or I think in some way, and gets to befriend them and connects them. And they're best of friends. And they get to connect and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. And then one day, he kills him. And he was seen as a hero because he was able to so thoroughly and incredibly deceive his enemy. You know, I have to think that the devil really liked this. What a great thing. These people hate each other. They fight already. They don't know anything about me. And guess what? The thing they think the best thing is to do is just, you know, lie to each other. This is, this is working out. But, you know, as discouraging as it was, one thing happened one day. that There was two, two tribes that were going to fight. They were about ready to go to war. And the chiefs both decided, if we go to war, this might be the end of our tribes. So they had, a, they had a tradition. One of the chiefs took one of their children, took this child, and gave it to the other tribe. You know what they called this child? The title of the book. This was the peace child. This was the last gas desperate. We're really serious this time. We cannot go to war. Or we are going, you know, we just don't, there's not enough of us left. So he gives the peace child. And so guess what that missionary says? I can tell you about another peace child. That was the peace child for all the world. That the one true God gave his child. So all of us could have peace with him. I think the devil probably really thought he really had something going there. Of course, guess what happened? Many, 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 many people of those tribes came to Christ. The consequence of that seemingly terrible system where so many people had died, killing each other for years and years. The sin that had ravaged them, God was able to turn that into something wonderful. And you know, hard things happen to us in our life. Just keep getting older, it'll happen. And so hard, so hard, and sometimes we, we can't see the good that's going to come. When Paul started going house to house, do you think anyone among the Christian community said, this is great. What a good thing. This is, this is going to really work out. I'm sure glad Stephen got killed. I mean, kind of a bummer now, but it's, it's going to be okay. I, I, don't think that, I don't think that's what they said. I think I'd be tempted to say something more like this. We're doing what you say. It's all going fine. 
and you let all this terrible stuff happen, one of the best guys we know gets killed. Why in the world should we stick with this? Isn't that how we feel in our lives sometimes? This happened to me. Why should I stick with this? There's a theologian. He decided that God didn't know the future. You know why? You know what the main motivations was? His wife died in a car wreck. I think his kids, I can't remember, but certainly his wife. And he said, no way. No way. Nothing good. This shouldn't have happened. God never could have known. And so rather than say, I don't know what good might come of this later, you know what he said? I'm just going to change my theology right around. Just going to deny the historic doctrine that the church is, you know, most of it currently believes, at least the, and for thousands of years the church has believed. Man, something bad happens to us, it's so easy to say, nothing good is going to come from this. I like to encourage you, in the same way that the Christians and Acts, they wouldn't have known what a good thing maybe this would have ended up being. Maybe the thing that's happening to you that's really difficult, maybe you don't know the good thing that it might be. Maybe, maybe you'll see it soon. Maybe you'll see it later. And maybe you'll have to see it from heaven. But I think we can have trust that God knows what he's doing, and he holds the future in, our, in his hands. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. We just thank you that we know that we can have confidence that even though when the difficulties come, we don't see what good could possibly come. Lord, I just pray that you would give us the faith to realize that we don't want the future to be in our hands. Oh, what crazy things we might do with it. We want it to be in yours. Give us the faith. Give us the trust. Give us the peace that passes all understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.